This episode is brought to you by the Historic Districts Council, the citywide advocate for New York's historic buildings and neighborhoods. For 50 years, HDC has been the only citywide organization which works directly with individual New Yorkers and community groups to preserve and protect New York's rich architectural and historical heritage, working with communities to landmark and protect significant neighborhoods and buildings, and helping already designated historic communities to understand and uphold the New York City Landmarks Law. For more information, visit hdc.org or call 212-614-9107. Funding for this episode is provided by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council and Council Member Benjamin Kalos. Episode 332 of The Bowery Boys. Welcome to Yorkville. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And hello, here's Thomas Myers. (laughs) Sorry, I was just getting in the Yorkville, Yorkville mood, Greg. No, this is Tom Myers. And today we are going to focus on the history of a Manhattan neighborhood that I would say gets often overlooked by a lot of people. And we hinted very strongly at the subject in our last show together, Greg. Yes, our destination today is Yorkville, a place on Manhattan's Upper East Side. Now, if you were to survey some people out in the street this summer, ask them to give an impression about the Upper East Side generally... They might refer to it as an ultra-wealthy neighborhood, you know, private schools, gossip girl. (laughs) And it's true, (laughs) the Upper East Side has hundreds of ritzy apartment buildings, condos, and townhouses. Yes, and it also has a great many cultural institutions, you know, museums and galleries and libraries. Uh, But most of those are closer to Central Park or near Park Avenue or Madison Avenue or Fifth Avenue. Addresses known for, you know, all things glitzy. But Yorkville has a different reputation. For almost 170 years, it has been defined by waves of immigrant communities which have settled here, particularly those cultures from Central and Eastern Europe. The Germans, the Austrians, the Hungarians, and the Czechs and Slovaks. Now, of course, if you live in Yorkville or or grew up there, you're familiar with its fascinating history already. Most likely through many of its restaurants and cafes and delicious bakeries. You know, actually, Tom, New Yorkers have recently become familiar with Yorkville because of another train, the opening of the Second Avenue subway with a couple big, new, beautiful stations that were just opened here, up here in Yorkville. That's right. And we will get to that in a moment. But we will spend most of this episode above ground, uh, stopping by a few places that people will definitely know. Some bold face names, you know, including Gracie Mansion, the current home of the mayor of New York City. So in this show, we've got model tenements, music halls, churches. We've got bratwurst (laughs) and we've got lots and lots of beer. Uh, And Greg, we also have got a council member. 
Listeners, stay tuned, because at the very end of the show, we have a very special guest joining us, reflecting upon his own experience in the neighborhood, and that would be Councilperson Ben Kalos, who represents the Upper East Side, Midtown East, Roosevelt Island, and East Harlem. Um, And here, of course, in the Upper East Side, he also represents and lives in Yorkville. So put on your lederhosen, grab a decanter of your finest Hellgate lager, and join us as we explore the story of Yorkville, an immigrant enclave on the Upper East Side. Okay, well, now today, of course, we will be talking about a neighborhood on the Upper East Side, um, that area of Manhattan that falls between Central Park to its west and the East River shoreline to its east. But, Greg, perhaps you could situate us more specifically on today's grid plan. Yes. Yorkville is a specific neighborhood on the Upper East Side. Its borders are generally considered to be... 3rd Avenue to the East River Waterfront, okay, that's west to east, then 96th Street on the northern end down to about 72nd Street on its southern end. Although, as with most neighborhoods, borders aren't set in stone. And north of Yorkville is, of course, another very interesting neighborhood, East Harlem, that has its own fascinating immigrant history, Italian, Puerto Rican, Dominican, Cuban, Mexican... And then south of Yorkville, you have this area called Lenox Hill. Although, again, on some streets, those neighborhood names are just very interchangeable. Right. But just in terms of the big avenues that we'll be talking about today here in Yorkville, Yorkville has five big avenues. First, second, and third. And then you have York Avenue and Mm -hmm. smaller East End Avenue. However, because of that bend in Manhattan up here at this point of the island, those two avenues actually do not extend beyond 92nd Street. And you said York Avenue. Um, mm-hmm. And York Avenue, is is it named after this neighborhood, Yorkville? That was just a happy accident. It was uh, once named Avenue A, you know, because it extends from Avenue A down on the Lower East Side. But this was renamed York Avenue for World War I hero Alvin York oh. in 1928. But Tom, forget about those streets and those avenues. Erase all of that from your mind right now. I want to take you back to a time in the 18th century when there was no Upper East Side at all. Mm, 18th century. No, no Central Park. No grid plan. Not many roads up here, just undeveloped hills and fields and cliffs and coastlines. Yes, there were indeed cliffs here, bluffs that looked out over the water. Okay. Just paint a vista here. Okay, a little bit of a Bob Ross painting in your mind here, right? So, and picture a place called Hell Gate, where a confluence of rivers created a very turbulent waterway for passing ships. Now, the Dutch had actually given this area a name, Horn's Hook, in honor of the city of Horn in the Netherlands. But but way back then, Horn's Hook, and that's Horn with at least two O's, 
it would have really been very distant from the settlement of New Amsterdam or New York, as it would soon be known under the British. It was during the British period and into the post-revolutionary war America era here that Horns Hook became a desirable place to build a country home, a rural retreat. And along the shoreline and along the bluff here were summer homes for such families as the Rhinelanders, the Skirmerhorns, and the Asters. And in fact, mm. there was another family that moved in, the family of a successful merchant by the name of Archibald Gracie, who built oh. a house here in 1799 on the site of an older dwelling that had briefly been used as a meeting house for George Washington during the Revolutionary War. He didn't just build a house here, he, he built a mansion here. Um, and that will obviously come into the story later on. But all of these country homes, we must say, were, were some distance, you know, from New York. Uh, and they'd, they would have been only accessible, really, by ferry boat, um, or sometimes, I suppose, by carriage. But it really must have been exceptionally beautiful up here back in the day. And that natural beauty, by the way, it wasn't just relegated to the view over the river. These secluded homes were actually located in a lush forested area that they named Jones Wood. And in later years, as the city began you know, developing up to this area, these homes would be abandoned and then most of them torn down. But the forest here would be used as an early 19th century getaway for city folk. It sounds so cool. I mean, it's almost... It almost has like a Nancy Drew ring to it, you know, like woods and abandoned mansions. Um, but Jones Wood, where exactly would it ha would it have been? It, um, would it have fallen on today's grid plan? Around East Sixty Fifth Street and about Seventy Fifth Street along the waterfront. So very sizable, very beautiful. And how would anybody actually get up to it? Well, there was this one road that went through this area, uh, and that road was known as the Boston Post Road or the Eastern Post Road. The mail route that connected New York and Boston and the communities in between, and that ran along the spot approximating more or less today's Third Avenue. Okay, so by the early 19th century then, this whole area was still you know, bucolic countryside. Um, it was still sparsely populated. But then the commissioner's plan of 1811 came along, and and that would change everything. New York was then carved up into orderly streets and avenues for most of the length of the island of Manhattan, you know, the streets and avenues that we know and love today. Mm -hmm. The Boston Post Road was then phased out, and it became Third Avenue. And it was around 86th Street and 3rd Avenue, okay, like spot of that old post road. It was there that the first settlement with the name Yorkville was developed. And why here? Why, why around today's 86th Street? Yeah, like why this exact spot? Well, this is where a small road led down to a ferry terminal along the waterfront. So a little community formed here around this intersection, which then took the name of Yorkville. Now, Tom, 
I found the f- a, a very early reference, a very early reference to the name of Yorkville in a 1826 edition of the New York Evening Post. Oh, I'm glad you had that issue. <laughs> yeah, this is what uh, this is what lockdown has been like. Just reading through my back <laughs> issues of the uh, New York Evening Post here. Anyway, so. In this article from 1826, it addresses the schools of Yorkville and two, as well as those of two neighboring villages, Harlem and Manhattanville. Oh, cool. Two, you know, those are both obviously names of neighborhoods today, but in the 1820s, uh, they were still considered independent villages. Oh, and get this, Tom. Okay, speaking of villages here, I should add that Seneca Village, which was the first free black settlement in Mm -hmm. New York, was just due west of Yorkville here, uh, just about a mile or so. Yeah, and it was actually founded... At around the same time, right? right in the mid-1820s. Yeah, the same decade. Uh, now, you know, Tom, in back to that 1826 issue of the newspaper, um, I also found a listing for a stagecoach. Hmm, you want to hear it? Okay. Quote, The Board of Improvement of Yorkville respectfully informs the citizens of New York that they have made arrangements to run stages from Yorkville to New York leaving Abram Bensel's Tavern at Yorkville every 7 o'clock a.m. and 1 and 5 o'clock p.m. That is... Can you imagine getting to say every morning, you know, you are heading off, farewell, I must take the 7 a.m. stagecoach to New York. It's so great. Yeah, I mean, I just... I love the fact that they just refer to New York in that piece as though they're not on the same island with it. Anyway, uh, you can say that the stagecoach even made Yorkville um, because a coach factory was built here in the late 1820s. And by the 1830s, you had dozens of families that were already making Yorkville their home. Wow. So the Upper East Side has had coach outlets since the 1820s? (laughs) Yes, for 200 years. But I'm sorry. No, but you left us in the 1830s. So by then, though... Um, the fa- you, there was another form of transportation that was riding through here, right? The railroad. Yeah, uh, we discussed this uh, just a couple weeks ago in our show on the East Side Elevated Railroads. And we actually began that show talking about the New York and Harlem Railroad, which built their first New York Railroad along 4th Avenue, partially in a trench, from Union Square all the way up to 92nd Street. And soon by the 1840s, you had omnibuses and different kinds of coaches serving the area as well. But even with those transportation options, which were convenient, they were still slow, you know? And I guess that is really what kept these villages up here, Yorkville and Harlem, pretty quiet. Yes, but change was on the way here because you had... New York civic leaders who were looking for a place to develop a park, a public park. Mm, Right, because that old commissioner's plan didn't accommodate a park. Believe it or not, it didn't. There needed to be a place for people to escape to from time to time. Uh, So they they actually first looked at that old Jones Wood as an idea, but instead... 
they chose an area of land in the center of the island. I guess that made more sense, making it a more central park. Mm-hmm. And so then throughout the 1850s and 1860s, the city developed Central Park. And then by doing so, they ensured that Yorkville wouldn't be a quiet place for very much longer. No, it wouldn't. Uh, This park and this entire neighborhood would soon be attracting New Yorkers in droves. But again, how could they get here in any kind of, you know, efficient manner? So you just mentioned those omnibuses and coaches, but they were so slow. As we briefly mentioned in that elevated railroad show, the transportation options for getting to and from Yorkville improved greatly in the 1850s, especially with the introduction of horse-drawn streetcars in 1854, which ran along 2nd and 3rd Avenues. And to review, those were streetcars that were pulled along by horses Mm -hmm. along rails that had been laid in the road. They were much more reliable and convenient, and and they were faster, um, which made the neighborhood much more attractive to potential residents. But this led to a a building boom, uh, and nearly 2,000 one- and two-family wooden homes uh, would be constructed by 1864 up here, some of which are still standing today. So, okay, so these are the homes of Yorkville, but who are the people who are moving up here to this neighborhood? Who is moving into these houses? Well, at this point, it was really a mix. Um, There were American-born residents, you know, along with those who had immigrated from Germany and Ireland. These populations would also go on to construct public services like the German Hospital in 1869, um, St. Joseph's Orphan Asylum, um, which was primarily uh, for German children, um, and which was funded by a German congregation down on 3rd Street in today's East Village. Oh, so down on 3rd Street. So I think you can see how, like in this case, this brand new German community who was immigrating to the United States and moving downtown was starting to accommodate and provide services for others in the German community, including those already moving up to Yorkville. Exactly. And it it wasn't just the German community who was doing this, too. You know, there was a thriving Irish community as well. Um, As is illustrated in the book Shaped by Immigrants, A History of Yorkville by the Friends of the Upper East Side Historic Districts, by 1855, Irish immigrants and their children made up a third of the city's population and a thriving Irish community uh, that was known as Irish Town had formed up in the Yorkville neighborhood or what we might consider just west of it today um, because it was between 4th or Park Avenue and 5th Avenues um, and in the low 80s. So a thriving Irish community was over there a little further west by the 1850s. But then, Mm -hmm. of course, just east of that here, a German community was taking hold and then moving into these new single family houses. Yes. So then by the 1860s and 70s, there are more upscale single family homes being built, um, being made of brownstone and brick and being constructed for middle and also upper-class German families, moving up from the German enclave in the East Village, which was known as Kleindeutschland, Little Germany. Um, But meanwhile, you know, there were developers who were also constructing tenements and apartment buildings for working-class residents as well. So these old family estates are 
history by this point. They're all gone. And those that have remained are getting carved up and redeveloped. Yes, and already by the 1870s. Um, But that would even pick up speed in the 1880s and 1890s. And sometimes it was actually the heirs to those estates who were doing the developing. All right. What were the residents doing here in the 1870s? Like, were they working here? Were there jobs nearby? Because it must have still been pretty inconvenient to work all the way downtown in the city, right? Without any actual, like, speedy mass transit. Many of the residents did work up here. You know, many of the Irish were working on really big infrastructure and public works projects, like the Crown Aqueduct, um, the reservoir in today's Central Park, like Central Park itself. While many of the German men, you know, were employed in the neighborhood's factories, many were artisans, they were running small shops. All right, so shops, different kinds of factories. But aren't you forgetting, like, one pretty major industry um, that those 19th century German immigrants often entered when they arrived here? You must be talking about pianos. So many Germans living in Yorkville worked over in the Steinway Piano Factory in Astoria, which opened in 1870, that the company um, operated a piano ferry uh, from, from 92nd Street across the East River directly to that factory. Well, I mean... That is interesting. I wasn't even thinking pianos, but, you know, piano making, piano fairies. This is interesting. But I guess I was thinking a little bit more along the lines of, of like, beer. Yes. And obviously, I couldn't forget beer. You can't tell the story of Yorkville or Germans in New York, for that matter, without talking about the breweries. And um, the the first big one up here was George Eretz appropriately named Hellgate Brewery, uh, which opened in 1866 between 2nd and 3rd Avenues on 92nd Street. It produced German-style lager. George Eretz was a sprawling brick complex. The images that I have seen, they almost have this, like, Willy Wonka quality to them, you know? It just goes on and on with smokestacks and, and... In the very next year, in 1867, a rival brewer, Jacob Rupert Sr., opened his brewery just across the street to the south at 91st between 2nd and 3rd. So you had another massive brewery across Mm -hmm. the street from George Eret. So there's two massive breweries. I mean, that's sort of a nervy move. Well, I think that Rupert saw the opportunity and hopped. But wait, it gets even better because five years later in 1872, another brewery, the George Ringler Brewery, opened up across the street from Rupert. And all of them were German immigrants who were who were changing the way that American beer was brewed and really, let's face it, improving its taste. You know, and not only were, were these brewers attracted to the neighborhood because of the German connection, and also the skilled German workforce, but, th- but also because they could use the water of the East River for cooling and for production purposes. And obviously the waterfront was handy for shipping. And, you know, I mean, most people uh, may not know the name George Eret or Hellgate Beer, but I mean, back in the day, this was a big deal. The biggest, yeah. I mean, by 1879... George Eretz, it was the largest brewery in the country 
producing more than 180,000 barrels of beer a year. So these breweries obviously attracted a huge German workforce and brought them Mm -hmm. up to the neighborhood as greater numbers of German families then moved from the Lower East Side in today's East Village, moved from that area, and then moved up here to Yorkville. Yeah, and that would be something that would only be accelerated with the opening of the elevated trains in the late 1870s. This, of course, was the main subject of our East Side Elevated show. Yes, and just to recap, the 3rd Avenue Elevated opened in 1878, and the 2nd Avenue opened in 1880. And as we underscored in that show, this new form of transportation was really transformative um, because the streets were such a crowded and chaotic mess. Streetcars were so slow. You know, these these neighborhoods had they've really been up to this moment too far flung to be convenient for everyday commuters to jobs down in the city. But once these trains, you know, came along and elevated passengers off of and over the streets, you really could live all the way up in Yorkville and travel by elevated train to, to your job downtown um, in a way that was much faster and more convenient. And only for a nickel. And it would stay a nickel for decades. And by the way, for decades, these trains would be up and running and would be providing transit, you know, for the masses decades before the subway would open up in 1904. So then by the 1880s then, with these trains officially whisking residents uptown and downtown, neighborhoods that were along these train lines then could really fill out now. Yeah, and and that was something that was happening all over the city. And it was happening as well at a moment when immigration to the U.S. and of course to New York was surging. So naturally then, with this population boom in Yorkville, comes a a building boom to house all these new residents. And in this specific case, lots of developers looking to make money. And as I mentioned before, sometimes those developers were heirs to the old estates, like the Rhinelanders, who you just mentioned. Uh, But we should note that, that the housing tended to be much more working class, the closer it got to those elevateds at 2nd and 3rd Avenue. So generally speaking, then east of Lexington Avenue, as you got closer to the noise and the dirt of the trains, you found apartment buildings and tenements, whereas more upscale, you know, single family homes were the norm west of Lexington uh, and in the direction of 5th Avenue. You know, just this past weekend, Tom, I took a very entertaining walk through Yorkville. I mean, this is a neighborhood that you and I have explored together on several occasions. And of course, I've Mm -hmm. wandered through there myself many, many times. But, you know, I haven't been back to Manhattan in a while. uh, So this was my entree into the Upper East Side. And I walked actually from Central Park and just kind of meandered through the streets here. Mm-hmm. And I never, I don't think I noticed, but I really marveled at the diversity of housing stock here and, you know, how that housing changes the further east you walk. There are so many apartment buildings and tenements that are still standing from this era that you're speaking about. I mean, so many are still here. So many are still with us. And we should point out also that there's a difference between 
the tenement buildings uh, that were constructed often for working class families, which, you know, like other tenements on the Lower East Side and elsewhere in the city, were often, you know, very cramped, usually didn't offer private bathrooms, maybe not full kitchens. Those tenements were different from the new French flat style apartment buildings that started popping up around Yorkville around 1880 or so. Those apartment buildings were more spacious. They had more light, fresh air. And each apartment, notably, had its own private bathroom. They were, of course, pricier, and they became popular and acceptable for the middle-class families moving into the neighborhood. And one prime example of this new modern apartment building was the Manhattan, which was uh, completed in 1880 at the southwest corner of 86th Street and 2nd Avenue, and that was designed by Charles Clinton. Yeah, and this building still stands today. I walked mm-hmm. by it uh, on my little voyage this past weekend, as do so many of these original housing options. Now, before we jump into the 20th century, I just wanted to point out that we're focusing much of this show today on the German community in Yorkville. But we should mention that there were several other ethnic enclaves that existed throughout the neighborhood. Yes, the German community was centered around East 86th Street uh, with its lively restaurants and beer gardens and theaters and shops. But south of here, a Hungarian community uh, referred to as Little Hungary situated itself around 79th Street, which earned it the moniker Gulash Avenue. And then further south, Czechs and Slovaks would settle around East 72nd Street. And just like the German community, many of those residents who first arrived in New York also first moved to the Lower East Side, but then relocated up here in York. That's right. And, and they brought their food and religious institutions and churches and cultural institutions. For example, the Czechs and Slovaks built themselves a new social hall to replace the one that they had had on the Lower East Side. The new one, which they named the Bohemian National Hall was finished on East 73rd Street in 1897, and it's still open today. And the Bohemian National Hall is an incredible place. Yeah. But on the subject of the Czech community for a moment, they were also famous for their role in the city and the neighborhood's cigar manufacturing business. Yeah, many Czechs to New York immigrated to New York from Sedlik, which was an important center for cigar manufacturing. So these people had some real cigar skills. And in fact, by 1873, I know this is hard to believe, but it's estimated that a whopping 95% of the Czech population working in New York City were in the cigar business. And the thing about cigar making, Tom, is that you can pretty much just do it anywhere. In fact, I could be uh, rolling a cigar right now and you wouldn't even know it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I have rolled thousands of cigars during during the past three months, Greg, while we've been recording. But seriously, m- much of the actual cigar making was conducted out of their homes. And tenements were sometimes built by the cigar bosses themselves, who would then rent them out to their employees. These were referred to as, quote, cigar tenements. And you could find them throughout Yorkville. So in the 50 years from 1850 to 1900, Yorkville has transformed from a somewhat 
isolated village with a lot of vacant lots to a bustling neighborhood that was lined with apartment buildings and tenements and drawing an increasingly diverse group of residents from around the world. But the neighborhood's German population would dramatically increase following a tragedy that would shake their community in 1904. We'll visit Yorkville in the 20th century right after this very special message. This episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by the Historic Districts Council, the citywide advocate for New York's historic buildings and neighborhoods. And on the line today, I have none other than Simeon Bankoff, the executive director of HDC. Hello, Simeon. Hey, Greg. Great to be here. Thank you so much. The HDC turns 50 years old this year. How did the Historic Districts Council get its start? 50 years ago, HDC was founded as a committee of the Municipal Arts Society. The idea was that all of the representatives of the then two dozen historic districts and all the other neighborhoods who wished to be historic districts could band together and really give a personal voice for the notion of landmarking. We were really put together to be the representatives of the neighborhoods that were using the services of the Landmarks Preservation Commission and protecting the landmarks law. Realizing that preservation doesn't just begin and end with landmarks designation, we started working on a lot of public education, a lot of advocacy tools, community development tools. We've got a very robust education program. We do about, oh goodness gracious, three or four dozen programs a year, most of them free, all of them free now on as they are online. Now, Simeon, you were uh, actually on our live show uh, a few months ago, which people can listen to in our back catalog. But in that show, we actually explore the difference between what a New York City landmark is and what a historic district is, which is kind of a, a larger concept to landmarking. What is specifically is a historic district? Really, a historic district means in the broadest sense of any collection of buildings that in and of itself, the pieces work together to make a a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts, that enables visitors to really understand an earlier era in time than the immediate present. Wasn't Yorkville was a a six to celebrate? A couple of years back. It's very interesting because the Upper East Side, classically, when you think of the Upper East Side and historic preservation, Mm -hmm. you think of Fifth Avenue, you think of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, you think of the Frick. But Yorkville is this extraordinarily rich immigrant history, a more working class history, that other side of the Upper East Side, Yorkville, which still has a lot of, or had a lot of neighborhood run purveyors of food, small shops, uh, a much more eclectic architecture, and some fantastic buildings that had been purpose built by Hungarians and Czechs. Uh, and Germans. You know, a community can only do so much to save a specific business, but you want to try to capture as much. You want to, first, you want to tell people that this business is there in, in, the, in the efforts to try to get them to go to it and use it and think about it when they're considering where to go and where to eat and what to do. And then, you know, you want to try to capture as much of their stories in as many ways as possible through videos, through research, through photographs through memorabilia, so that when somebody brings their 
young friends or young relatives and says, you know, our family lived in Yorkville for 60 years and we always used to go to glaciers and there's nothing there. You can have a better sense of what it was like where you actually came from. And, and that gives a grounding, which is incredibly important. So what are some of the programs that people could get involved with or get interested in that are happening right now at HDC and all that's happening right now in 2020? To some degree, because we work as community organizers, and I like to think of it as community developers, we sort of are in the role of not reactionaries, but therapists. We work to mm -hmm. respond to people's concerns. Really, the best thing that people can do if they want to get involved in historic preservation and want to get involved with having a voice in their neighborhood is keep their eyes open. When they walk around, when they look at their friends' social media feeds, when they talk to their friends, and you see something that troubles you, reach out and ask us or bring it to our attention. Uh, yeah, you, you basically need we, the citizens, to be junior detectives <laughs> for this That is of exactly things. right. This is We live in a very large, possibly impersonal city, but there are a lot of avenues to get involved and to get frustrated by, mm -hmm. but it is such a remarkable thing when you feel like you have actually managed to affect decision making on a broad scale. For more information about the Historic Districts Council, including ways to get involved in New York City preservation, visit hdc.org or call 212-614-9107. And now, back to the show. Okay, for our second part of our Yorkville show here, we are beginning with a terrible tragedy. One of the worst tragedies in New York City history. On June 15th, 1904, the steamboat General Slocum caught fire in the East River while taking hundreds of passengers to the north shore of Long Island for a picnic. In fact, the ship caught fire and began sinking near the Hellgate. So residents of Yorkville might very well have actually witnessed this happening. That's horrible. Over a thousand people died in that disaster, mostly women and children from the German neighborhood that you mentioned earlier in the show, Klein Deutschland, in the area of today's East Village. Now, most of those who perished were parishioners at St. John's Evangelical Lutheran Church, which is down on East 6th Street, although many families from other congregations were, you know, just along for the ride, for the picnic. And we have a, we have a show in our back catalog um, on the story of the General Slocum disaster, number 166. And it's because of this disaster, then, that the Lower East Side German neighborhood was decimated. Many German families were already migrating north to come live up here in Yorkville by this time. But it is true that the disaster broke up families and many of the survivors moved up to Yorkville and, of course, to other German enclaves that were sprouting up by the early 20th century in the new five boroughs of greater New York. There was so much development that was already going on in New York, you know, by the 1900s, and I suspect that the same was happening up in Yorkville. Uh, yes, it was. And in fact, actually, let's go back to 86th Street, okay? I mean, this is the street where it all began. Now, by 1910, this had really developed into a row of restaurants, 
cafes and dance halls. So many, in fact, that the residents nicknamed 86th Street Sauerkraut Boulevard, right? Did you, didn't you say that uh, Goulash Avenue was nearby? Well, if you were still hungry, you mm. came over here to Sauerkraut Boulevard. If you're still hungry. Tom, this was really something to behold. My only frame of reference is Germany itself. Remember, Greg, when I lived in Berlin in 2001 and you came to visit, how many of those little, you know, sauerkraut and sausage joints did we go to? Oh, yeah. All of those great little cafes, all those all night cafes, right? Now, today we don't necessarily have a German neighborhood in the same way that we have a Russian neighborhood, such as Brighton Beach, for instance, or a Dominican neighborhood or a Chinese neighborhood, where you have ethnic customs and cuisine concentrated in one place. Now, Glendale, Queens might be the closest we have. It's probably the largest German enclave um, that's left in New York City. But the scene there is nothing like it was on 86th Street along Sauerkraut Boulevard mm-hmm. back in the day. Uh, there were social clubs and music organizations, people at cafes or drinking beer, reading German newspapers. And I imagine everybody's speaking German, too, right? Which is Yeah, pretty much. Which is interesting because so many German immigrants were working to assimilate into American culture. But here in Yorkville, those... German roots were being openly celebrated. Now, for many German New Yorkers who visited Yorkville from other places, it was a place where you could find food and music that maybe you hadn't experienced in a while. You know, food that your parents served you, food from back home. Although, of course, Yorkville had many incredible churches and synagogues in the neighborhood along 86th Street here, it would have been more dining and amusement-based. I'm imagining heated intellectual arguments, you know, inside cafes, maybe somebody hammering out a German folk song on a, on a piano, on a Steinway, uh, perhaps a tuba, you know, tooting in the corner. Sauerkraut Boulevard might have been one of New York's most musical streets. I mean, and that is saying something here in the early 20th century. Yeah. Over the next couple decades, 86th Street would also get Nickelodeons and silent movie houses, which played the latest films from Germany. But perhaps the star attraction of Yorkville was the Yorkville Casino, constructed in 1904 at 210 East 86th Street, right off of 3rd Avenue. Did you say casino? Like gambling? Not like the slot machine kind of casino, but like more of a social hall, an entertainment complex, a, mm. an emporium of German entertainment. There was, a, there was a room for a cabaret, there was a movie theater, and two gigantic ballrooms for late night dancing and merriment. And even in later years here, there would even be boxing matches here. Oh, so kind of like a German Madison Square Garden. And just like Madison Square Garden, actually, this would be a place for political rallies as well. In September of 1912, then New York governor and presidential candidate Woodrow Wilson spoke here at the casino in an election rally. According to one newspaper report, quote, Governor Wilson spoke for nearly an hour to 500 persons. 
When he was introduced, men and women stood upon their chairs and shouted themselves hoarse. The governor was in a particularly happy mood, and he put some punch in his speech. Well, that sounds like a gay old time at the Yorkville Casino. Mm-hmm. But of course, bringing Wilson into the story here, that means that World War One would be just right around the corner. And so eventually America would be in a war with Germany. And I'm sure that uh, times here in Yorkville then became a bit more challenging. Well, especially if you consider that Yorkville also has Czech and Slovak residents who enthusiastically enlisted to fight the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians in World War I. It was a very fraught time here in the world, especially here in Yorkville. And many Germans sided with Germany, or at least found themselves deeply conflicted. Throughout New York and the United States, German-Americans were shunned and distrusted, not entirely without merit in a few cases. Uh, for instance, in 1916, the explosion of a munitions factory in New Jersey on the small island of Black Tom mm-hmm. did reveal the presence of German saboteurs in New York during the war. But this just made life more complicated for the city's thousands of German residents who were loyal to the United States. So then how did life change in Yorkville here after World War I? Well, I think in a continuum with what you were speaking about, about these changing housing styles, that is continuing to evolve and change here, of course, after the war. Many tenements were torn down and replaced with new six-story apartment complexes. Yorkville was already a spot for new housing ideas, as you said. Uh, During the 1910s, uh, so, you know, during the war here, there were even a collection of model tenements being constructed. And, I'm sorry, what makes them model tenements? Well, what I mean is just experimental ideas in housing, which provided mm-hmm. more space, more lighting, uh, more air. And by the 1920s and 30s, you even had dozens of apartment buildings with elevator service, mm. replacing some of those older tenements. So, and are any of the, these model tenements still around? There are some beautiful examples of these around John J. Park here in Yorkville. This is a park that was developed in 1906. It's located on 76th Street and the East River. The Cherokee Apartments and the City and Suburban York Avenue Estate were completed in the 1910s. These are really quite breathtaking tenements, I must say, which is not really a word I often use to describe tenement buildings. They, They remind me of apartment buildings that you might find in Queens. And I guess that we should mention that by the 1930s, a lot of people were moving out of places like Yorkville to those Queens apartments uh, and to Brooklyn and to the Bronx. People were moving out, you know, throughout the city, but I can imagine that it really depleted the population in a place like Yorkville. Yes, but there was still a strong German presence here in Yorkville, even by the 1930s. In fact, one of the remaining vestiges of old Yorkville that's, that's still with us today opened in the 1930s. Schaller and Weber, the famed German meat shop, 
which opened in 1937, and they're located on 2nd Avenue between 85th and 86th. It really is. It really is a German, a German meat wonderland in there, Greg. <laughs> and, you know, it's the kind of place, it's the best of the worst, as they say, in Manhattan. <laughs> They've got Knockwurst and Bratwurst and Wieners and Schnitzels. They've got it. They've got it all. I imagine that in the good old days of Yorkville, there were many places like Schaller and Weber's. Mm -hmm. But by the 1940s, as you might guess, things turned a bit of a corner here in Yorkville with World War II as the Allied powers again went to war with Germany. And there was definitely a pro-German, pro-Nazi contingent in Yorkville. During the 1930s, actually, a pro-Hitler organization known as the German-American Bund was headquartered here in Yorkville. And since uh, we recalled the name Madison Square Garden earlier in the show, I should mention that in February of 1939, this organization held a pro-Nazi rally at Madison Square Garden. Just as like just one of these events in American history that you can't even believe took place. And yet, regrettably, it did. And even here in Yorkville, there were conflicts between German-Jewish residents and German business owners um, who were sympathetic with the Nazis. Tom, there were even frequent brawls and riots on the streets of Yorkville between Nazi sympathizers and anti-Nazi, anti-fascist groups. Um, According to one 1935 newspaper report, quote, a semi-military order of Nazis frequently appear on the Yorkville streets in a uniform of black breeches, black boots, white shirts, and swastikas. That is frightening. But they would be met on the streets of Yorkville by anti-fascist military men and war veterans in brawls that would sometimes be very bloody. Actually, of one such attack, I read in the New York Daily News from 1935, quote, Sailing under a full head of beer, a diminutive German soldier named Theodore Egeling spread riots and gunplay yesterday through German-American Yorkville, where he damned Hitler at the top of his seagoing lungs and offered to pop the first Nazi who dared contradict him. He was set upon by a mob, and the police had to rescue him. Wow, you said his name was Theodore Egeling? Egeling, yes, Egeling. Egeling. So one of America's first anti-fascists. However, by the time the United States entered World War II, most German Americans were very passionately on the side of the U.S., and the German-American Bund was gone. Well, and something else that was gone by the early 1940s was the Second Avenue Elevated, which had been demolished in 1942, and then the Third Avenue Elevated came down 13 years later in 1955. You can just imagine, and we, we talked about this to a great length, but you can imagine what a difference that made. Well, good and bad, I guess. The avenues suddenly opened up here, of course. You had fresh air and light shining down on all these establishments, but the neighborhood lost its mass transit. There had already been, by then, plans in the works for decades for the elevated service to be replaced by a 2nd Avenue subway. 
Yeah, the city had been replacing elevated lines to an extent by building new subway lines. And that's what they had been doing for decades, most notably with the new subways along 6th Avenue and 8th Avenue, Mm -hmm. which replaced the old 6th Avenue elevated and the 9th Avenue elevated. And the same was supposed to happen over here on the east side on 2nd Avenue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but of course, the elevateds would come down. And then there wouldn't be a Second Avenue subway for for several more generations. <laughs> <laughs> and so Yorkville and the entire Upper East Side basically had to rely just on the Lexington Avenue subway service. Yeah, which led to massive overcrowding along that line and also led to very crowded bus service as well. But at the same time, the demolition of these elevateds would open up the avenues and and would obviously make the area a bit more attractive. Yeah, sure. And that would lead to much more valuable real estate, too. Because remember that the buildings that were lining 2nd and 3rd Avenues included mostly tenements and lower rent apartment buildings. So rents were depressed or rather low because of the trains that were rattling by outside their windows. But now, those annoyances were gone. And these buildings and these lots became much more valuable. Well, I'm guessing that woke up a lot of these landlords who wanted to cash in. Yeah, cash in or just redevelop on their own. And and this was happening in the late 1950s, just as the city was considering a new zoning law, which developers were assuming once passed, would limit their ability to freely construct very dense residential buildings. According to the book Shaped by Immigrants, A History of Yorkville, quote, this rush to build led to the construction of at least 60 new buildings between 1953 and 1963, many of which are the ubiquitous white brick mid-century modern structures. Commenting on this period, the Yorkville Civic Council, a local social service organization, wrote, quote, By and large, the neighborhood was becoming a densely populated bedroom and playground for young middle class and upper class people who tended to move to the suburbs as soon as they married and had children. So things were changing in, in many ways. You, you really do notice those huge apartment buildings when you're walking through this neighborhood. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you can't escape them, although they're mostly along those avenues. Yeah, or along the kind of main east-west thoroughfares, you know, like mm-hmm. 86 and 79th and 72nd. So how did this affect old Sauerkraut Boulevard? <laughs> were those old vestiges of Germany? Was it all fading away? Well, I think it's like, you know, so many other stories that we've told about New York in the 1950s and 60s. There were many different things going on. There was assimilation. You know, there was no longer such a need for certain ethnic enclaves to exist. And at the same time, there were people moving out of the city. And and this didn't just affect housing, uh, but also stores. I found a 1967 article in the New York Times about a property at 210 East 86th Street in the heart of Germantown on the south side of 86 between 2nd and 3rd. Greg, this is the address of the old Yorkville Casino. Oh, our old centerpiece here of German social life. German Madison Square Garden, yes. Well, the headline, Offices Invade Yorkville Section. 
quote, a somewhat daring real estate venture, an office building on East 86th Street, is taking shape in Yorkville, with brownstones, beer halls, and small stores as neighbors. This six-story building that once was the Yorkville Casino is being converted into the first office building on the street. If 210 East 86 rents well, it is thought the way could be paved for more office spaces in Yorkville, where high-rise, high-rent apartment houses have been opening in increasing numbers. And then it goes on to quote the developer, uh, who discusses the changing character of 86th Street. He says, quote, This is no longer the Brauhaus type of German neighborhood it once was. This is definitely a moment of transition and our tale of Yorkville here. Mm -hmm. Imagine the same thing happening throughout the whole neighborhood. Yeah, and also imagine, you know, the next wave of high-rise residential construction that would take place during the 80s and 90s. And there are even more new, you know, large structures that are opening today but again, mostly along the avenues. Well, I mean, this is a case of history repeating itself. Mm -hmm. There was a development boom once the Elevateds opened, like 140 years before this. And now there's another construction boom, thanks to the long-awaited opening of the 2nd Avenue subway. Exactly, which opened to great fanfare in 2017 with stations at 72nd, 86th, and 96th Street. But today, if you're headed to Yorkville by foot or by bus or by Q train or however, luckily you'll still be able to find a lot of remnants of Yorkville's fascinating history here. Many. And we mentioned already all of the housing. Really try to focus as you walk around on the housing, especially the buildings that are more than 100 years old. And Im imagine the mostly immigrant families that first moved into these buildings, the Germans, the Hungarians, the Czechs and Slovaks. Those model tenements. Yes. And if you get off the new 2nd Avenue subway at 86th Street, turn around and check out the Manhattan um, at, at 244 East 86 on the southwest corner. Imagine this whole area, you know, being the Rhinelander estate uh, before all this development. And then um, imagine this building, the Manhattan, being this big progressive step forward for renters. And, and then turn around and you'll see Schaller and Weber, you know, the Medias meat market on the block. And then look two doors down from that at the Heidelberg restaurant, one of, my, one of our favorite haunts on the Upper East Side. I mean, how many times have we parked ourselves at that bar, Greg, for a, for a cold stein? Anytime we are remotely in the neighborhood, we stop by the Heidelberg. By the way, do you think they still serve Hellgate Lager? <laughs> oh, who, who do we need to talk to? Well, after a light German meal, a little pick-me-up. <laughs> very light, very light. Let's go on a little stroll, uh, maybe a little walk over to that old Archibald Gracie mansion, uh, the one that we talked about mm -hmm. earlier. Now, that's over on East End and 88th Street. Yes, and along the way, we'll be crossing over York Avenue and cross East End Avenue to arrive at Carl Schurz Park, which stretches from East 84th to East 90th, you know, where the island hooks back in. And so Gracie Mansion is on the northern part of that mm -hmm. park, okay, so on 88th. Although, of course, you know, when Archibald 
built his estate here in 1799, there weren't 88 streets. There were almost no streets. <laughs> but I'm, he would have laughed at the thought of 88 streets, you know, um, <laughs> or 88th running toward his home. But his home has been the official residence of the mayor of New York since 1942. And, and the grounds are quite lovely overlooking the East River. The park itself is beautiful and it's gone through many iterations, uh, including, of course, a Robert Moses iteration in 1935. Yes, because uh, the FDR Drive was being constructed under its eastern edge. So that platform then that was built over the FDR is actually, it's a wonderful outdoor promenade. And it's part of the East River Greenway. Who is Carl Schurz? How How did the park get its name? Oh, Carl Schurz was a German-born political agitator um, who would become an American statesman, a military leader. He Im- He's fascinating. He immigrated to the U.S. in the 1850s. He became a major general uh, in the Union Army during the Civil War. He was an elected senator from the state of Missouri, and he would serve as the Secretary of the Interior. Wow. Okay, so I'd say he deserves his own park. Now, if you liked our older show uh, from earlier this year on the history of the Carnegie Libraries, then I suggest you swing over to 79th Street because Yorkville can actually boast having the very first of the city's Carnegie Libraries. That's 222 East 79th Street. That Yorkville branch was opened in 1902. Yes, and maybe we even have time to take in a lecture, Greg. You know, at the, at the 92nd Street Y, you know, once everybody's going to lectures again, that organization, which was founded as the Young Men's Hebrew Association in 1874, was housed, well, in several different spots around town before landing up here at 92nd and Lexington in 1900. Uh, and its current building dates from 1930. So you get the picture here. There's still a lot of history to explore in Yorkville. For more on this story, including wonderful images of Yorkville past and present, please visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. And you can also find us on various social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. A huge thank you to the Historic Districts Council and to Council Member Benjamin Kalos. Funding for this episode was provided by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council and Council Member Kalos. We would also like to thank the Friends of the Upper East Side and our friend George Calderero, who helped us with some of the research this week. Now, this show isn't over, okay? Keep listening to join a conversation between Tom and council member Ben Kalos. And we had a great chat about Yorkville's history and his Yorkville history. So join us for that in just a second. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. All right. Well, it is my great pleasure to be sitting down or speaking uh, at a respectable social distance uh, with Councilman Ben Kalos, who represents the Upper East Side, Midtown East, Roosevelt Island, and East Harlem, and in doing so also represents Yorkville. 
Uh, Councilman Kalos, thank you for being on the Bowery Boys. Thank you for having me. So we've just talked about the history of Yorkville from its earliest days all the way up to today, or at least to the opening of the 2nd Avenue subway, and covered a lot of ground there. But I would just love to spend a moment speaking with you about your own personal history of Yorkville, because I understand that you grew up here. Absolutely. My grandparents found their way to East 70th Street between 1st and 2nd Avenue, living in one of those tenements on the side street following World War II as they uh, fled anti-Semitism in Europe and my uh, grandparents had actually met here. And so uh, they were here. My mother grew up in the neighborhood and I have the privilege of growing up and uh, the neighborhood has definitely changed over these uh, this century. Mm -hmm. uh, and I will say one big change is it's been uh, over a century in the works but the Second Avenue subway finally did get completed while I was in the city council. And congrats on that. Did you, I'm curious, growing up with your grandparents and your parents, were you living together or nearby each other? Did you see each other? Uh, by the time I was born, my grandparents had actually moved from one of the tenements to some of the uh, tall buildings that had mm. been built along 72nd Street, and they found themselves in a rental. And during the 80s, a lot of rentals on the Upper East Side became co-ops. And so they ended up getting a two-bedroom co-op on the Upper East Side for $40,000. And uh, as <laughs> wow. I grew up with my mom, who was a single mom, we actually ended up living together. And this is something that is very common in immigrant households throughout this world, but is not quite common on the Upper East Side. Interesting. Um, did they, did your grandparents tell you stories of what the neighborhood was like right after World War II and how it, how it had changed? My grandparents uh, fled anti-Semitism, and so they had a position of assimilation for survival. Uh, my grandparents were from Hungary, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they did not speak with Hungarian accents. They had uh, worked very hard to get rid of it. I actually wanted to learn Hungarian, but they wouldn't speak it in the house or in front of me. They would speak it to each other if they thought I wasn't listening. And uh, a little bit of the history of your Phil <laughs> is this concept of a group of people who, who immigrated, who did have... Uh, a white privilege that allowed them to assimilate, particularly for Jewish people. But that being said, there was still always pride in being Hungarian around their food. And I think if you ask anyone with any culture, we're always most proud of the cultural heritage uh, in our food and that we eat. And those tastes live on. Are there still restaurants or uh, bakeries, Hungarian bakeries, today that your grandparents would have gone to? There were several Hungarian bakeries, and I remember that there were actually two that my uh, grandparents would go to, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, those aren't there anymore, but we do still have the Budapest Cafe, and one of my favorite cakes growing up was a, a Zacher tort, which is actually, I think, a Viennese tort. Mm -hmm. But it was something that was in the ambit of uh, Hungarian cuisine. And it's basically chocolate cake with raspberry jelly and a ganache on top that is just out of this world. So for my birthday, I always try to go to the Budapest Cafe because they either have a full Zacher tort or a small single size 
pieces. Um, but in addition to the Hungarian community, there is also a huge German community. And we've actually seen that German community remain despite multi-million dollar uh, buyout offers. Yeah. You mentioned that your your grandparents were able to to buy their apartment on 72nd Street for $40,000, a, a two-bedroom in the 1980s. Yes. Um, so that seems obviously to us is pretty affordable, um, even with inflation, you know, considering inflation. How has Yorkville changed? Has it remained affordable? I know that you've worked on city council on affordability issues and affordable housing issues. Would you consider that Yorkville today is still affordable? Everyone has an image of the Upper East Side with very tall buildings and doorman buildings. And that may be largely true on the avenues, but throughout the neighborhood, on every single side street, you will find four, five, and six-story walk-up tenements. These are just old tenement buildings. And one of the attractions to the Upper East Side is that these walk-ups are incredibly affordable. Many are rent-regulated. And about, I think, 60% or so of the units in my district are in these buildings. Hmm. And so folks can still get, and <laughs> this sounds expensive anywhere outside New York City, but you can still get an apartment for less than $2,000 on the Upper East Side in one of these walk-up tenements. And it might be a studio, it might be a one-bedroom. The tenement one-bedrooms might be different than you might consider. And uh, in fact, some of these uh, buildings are even old-style tenements complete with a uh, bathtub in the kitchen. Wow. Old school New York. Still alive and well in Yorkville. A absolutely. And we do have a, a we have more seniors uh, than most other census tracts in America because they, they are living and aging in these tenement buildings that their parents raised them in. And so you'll have multi-generations growing up in these tenement buildings. So it's just absolutely a, a hidden story on the Upper East Side of young professionals and others coming in and living in intergenerational house buildings with seniors who have been there since the beginning and just everyone struggling for affordable housing. Yeah. Finally, I'm just curious, what in your, in your mind, what makes Yorkville such a special neighborhood and such a special part of the city? A lot of Yorkville that remains was built during a progressive era. And so one intersection I might highlight is 78th Street and York Avenue. And so at that location, you have a public library across the street from a public school, across the street from a park complete with a pool. And uh, right next to that is the city and suburban York Avenue estate, which is one of the first purpose-built tenements for working-class New Yorkers. And so there was this whole concept of when you're building housing, making sure that the city services are there. Mm. And of course, with a lot of the new density that's come up, and especially during the pandemic, I'm just so grateful that here in this neighborhood, we have the East River Esplanade and Carl Schurz Park and John Jay Park, and we have libraries, we have pools, and though we may not have as much park space per capita as most others in the city, it still makes living in this neighborhood seem like more of a community and creates common spaces for children to come and play together. And 
it all comes down to this concept that we were all crammed into these tenements. Modern uh, luxury apartments aren't much bigger. And so folks needed these park spaces, these libraries, these schools to come together to congregate and continue that sense of community. Councilman Ben Kalis, thank you for uh, speaking with us about your experience in Yorkville. Thanks so much for being on the Bowery Boys. Thank you for having me.